But I ain't a conspiracy theory. I'm real. And I'm standing right here. And I know what the truth is. I knocked the shit out of this Chinese virus after about a week. When we talk about black magic, we are talking about Satanism, necromancy, alchemy, witchcraft, the worship of Satan, and the worship of dark forces. So, yeah, what, what I was talking about was, I'll just start from the very beginning. I don't know if you've noticed, but yeah, I have this giant gap on the uh, the left side of my mouth right now because I had a bridge uh, since I was I had a bridge since I was probably 15, I think, maybe about 15 or so. And it was all fine for until now. Except that about a year and a half or I guess coming up on two years ago now. I was out of town and I got a tooth infection in the canine, which was where the bridge was mounted on the left side. And then it just quit. Like it finally, like the cement just came loose. Like that tooth started failing. And while I, I was in Amarillo and I had this emergency dentist appointment and they just didn't do shit for it. And and I I am firmly under the belief that all bad things happen in Texas. Yeah, especially West Texas. So I went to this dentist appointment and instead of, you know, cleaning out the infection and doing all this treatment, they just prescribed me a course of antibiotics. I was stuck out of town at any rate. I took the antibiotics, the infection went away and everything seemed fine, except about three months later, the tooth started like shaking around. So it was basically fucked at that point. It, the infection had like, it was not totally resolved, just the pain went away. I found all of this out after I went to my own my own dentist and, you know, confirmed that this tooth was bad. So at any rate, I had to have that tooth extracted. I got an implant put in about six months ago or so. And now everything's all healed up and I'm going to get yeah, a crown put in like on the implant and everything will be fine. You can't see it on camera right now, but I have like a, I have metal in my face like right here. Wow. Fucking bionic. <laughs> exactly. Except it doesn't make me stronger or give me more money or a government contract. <laughs> so much for the $6 million man. <laughs> <laughs> Better, stronger, faster. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I would love to make some Seattle plans in the not too distant future. Yeah, I, I am. I cannot tell you how excited I am for the idea of you coming up here. It would, uh, it would be after the holidays and then, believe it or not, I will be in sunny Florida of all places <laughs> in February, in February. So this is some sort of, um, I don't know, insanely conceived family trip. The Texas of the Caribbean. I, I like to think of it as that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I'll probably get COVID. Um, Yeah. I actually went to a show recently, my first show since the pandemic started. No shit. Yeah, I went to a show and it was a great show. And I found out five days later that there was like a huge like COVID outbreak at the show. <laughs> yeah. Of course. There were people that didn't have masks on, but generally most people had masks on. Yeah, it seemed like 
I wore a mask the entire time unless I was drinking. And, you know, of course, for everybody listening, I'm not a moron. I've received both doses of a vaccine and I'll get a booster as soon as it's available to me. Yeah. And, and mine just became available to me like this week. So I'm going to probably get it next week. Absolutely. Get the booster. Yeah. Why, why, yeah, why would like, you not? It's I, a miracle of modern science. We, we have been waiting all of our lives to be at this moment where we have something like a, like a vaccine and a booster for a vaccine. So the two things that I have are, we'll always have Paris and Citizen of the World. Uh, both references to Casablanca. Uh, and I, I like the part where uh, the guy says to Rick, he's a citizen of the world. And so that that's the reference to Casablanca. And the other one is the obvious famous quote, we'll always have Paris. I think you need to travel more. <laughs> not the point uh, uh, oh my god i i slapped my desk and the the my my sound form went like my waveform went like crazy on audacity <laughs> well i i really do love casablanca and call me a philistine if you will but i nevertheless i do love it and, um, you know, this actually fits with your, your affinity for Wes Anderson movies. Get fucked. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how you meant that, but I'm going to assume get fucked. <laughs> There's a new one coming out. Are you excited? I already watched it. Really? You already saw it? I saw it when it fucking day one uh-huh. it's incredible and there really? there are references in it uh i'm not sure to what degree wes anderson intended and to what degree i'm superimposing credit on his awareness but there are references that appear to be uh to the 1968 uh revolt and uh, the situationists specifically you're talking about the Algerians? No, 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 no. In in Paris. Uh, oh, okay. The where the, where they said um, something along the lines of the, the the catchphrase of the movement was something along the lines of, or translated roughly as uh, uh, "beneath the pavement there is beach." We talked about that, yeah. Yeah, and there's a there's a line in the movie that it wasn't exactly that, but it was it was about paving stones. I don't remember the line at the moment. But the second I heard the line, I'm like, that's got to be a fucking reference. There's no way that they use well, the yeah. word paving stones in this way. Right. Um, that's exactly what they were talking about, what the situationists were talking about. Yeah. Let me say that. Let me say that again. That's exactly what the situationists were talking about. And uh, and inter- incidentally, I saw it with uh, my my good friend, who's also a wobbly. Uh, and who also has been reading, uh, uh, wait, I'm going to fuck this up. Guy Debord. Uh-oh. Guy Debord. Ah, I got it. Yeah. See, last time I said Guy Debord. <laughs> oh, God, it makes my ears bleed. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, that is, that's as, as you and I both know, but the listeners of don't know yet. Of all the people that should have an appreciation for, for, for French pronunciation. 
<laughs> I, well, yeah, that's that's not only correct, but the thing is, as our listeners don't know yet, uh, but you know very well, and our listeners will soon know, uh, much of my knowledge of how things are pronounced uh, from people's names, especially to uh, philosophies and things of that nature, are read, not heard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and And so that's kind of a running joke between you and me. Uh, because, uh, uh, as of our, our, some of our more recent podcasts, I had to really struggle to not call it Max Weber. <laughs> yeah. I tease about that stuff, but that's really a cultural problem. The fact that, the, that the, these people's names and these places are so out of touch to us. Like I said, I tease about it, but I don't really hold anybody personally accountable for this stuff. It's a fact that we are all victims of public education. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 nor do I ever take it as anything but teasing. And I think it's it's no, of kind course. of part of our yeah. banter. I know, I know you I know you don't take it as anything more than teasing. It really is a larger problem with our education in general. We we don't come across these things, and we and because we don't come across these things in our in our education, we also don't hear anybody else talking about them later on because they didn't come across them in their education. So nobody knows how to say any of this stuff, or pronounce any of these words, or knows, or is even familiar with these people's names. The fact that we have a whole nation of adults that run around that don't know anything about even somebody as really kind of minor, I think, as somebody like Jean-Paul Sartre. Yeah. With that, the fact that we don't even know his name or anything about the man or Albert Camus. We don't as have As you any know, idea. one of my personal favorites. I know he's one of your personal favorites. <laughs> but most people don't know that anything about that man. And these are people in the 20th century. And and they're not they're not nobodies either. Exactly. They're <laughs> not, it's not some it's not some fringe figure like some indie band or something like that that of course you might not have heard of this particular band or this singer. These are people who've contributed to our culture or or even but we don't know anything about them. Or even to the point uh, not to expose myself as too much of a francophile although it's probably too late for that. Uh, uh Americans most Americans probably don't even know who Charles de Gaulle is at all. All right. And and <laughs> he he is Who was that again? Oh, it, he made cheese or something, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> And 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 to the point that this figure in in the Western world uh, that formed I forget which now I'm sounding ignorant but I forget which French Republic but uh, the French Republic after World War Two uh, mm-hmm. and and was the leading figure in in the resistance. Oh, which one? It was I don't know that that that's a crazy part of French history is that. The Which government French has Republic? been reformed. <laughs> the nation has been reformed so many times that I, I I really don't know either. And I think they're on the third now? The third republic? I think they're on the fourth or the fifth. Oh my god. Alright. They could be. Go go Wikipedia or something. Working on it. But my point being that 
it doesn't that that part I think is not as crucial that Americans need to know, but the knowledge of who the fuck Charles de Gaulle is when you land in Paris in Charles de Gaulle Airport. Oh my God! Did you just say Paris? Well, I was trying to make up for the Guy de Broad comment earlier. <laughs> Guy de, <Guy> de Broad. <laughs> I'm leaving all of this in. I'm not doing any more. I'm not doing any more editing. I'm just going to mix the tracks and throw it out there to the world. People are listening, by the way. We have, we have actually. I'm serious about this. This is actually. This is not a joke. We. I've been looking at the at SoundCloud, and we have a number of listens. No shit. We really do. People. It's crazy. I. I, I was telling that i should say I, should i not say people's names i was telling my fiance <laughs> the, the um, names will be trained changed to be protect the innocent <laughs> I, w- I was telling I, I was telling my fiance that there i'll just say that normal so i can cut all that shit out i was telling my fiance that we have a listen from a person that i don't know <laughs> a, a complete stranger from south africa even Listened to the podcast and liked it. <laughs> How about that? That really happened. <laughs> uh, by the way, he rewrote the Constitution of France and founded the Fifth Republic. So are we on the Fifth now? I want to say that there is six. I, I want to say that after him, there was another one after the 60s. I'm really not totally sure that I understand. In fact, I should just rephrase that. I really do not understand what it means to initiate a new republic in France. I don't understand that. Nor do I. That's okay. I also feel totally Oh, 1958 to present. French Fifth Republic. Okay. All right. So we're on number five right now. Number five. Okay. Well, now that we got that figured out. <laughs> do you want to start the podcast? <laughs> Haven't we already started? Oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you are setting the programming for the beginning of our show today. Yes. Uh and I suppose as tradition has uh as is tradition so far for our third episode. Welcome to the Wet Wired Podcast. I'm Sean Andes. And I'm Julian Paul Butt. Today we're gonna be talking about Armistice Day. Doja Palooza, and everybody's favorite of the hour, Travis Scott. <laughs> Seriously, everybody is talking about this dude and this and this concert in Houston. It's incredible how much they're talking about it. It's really extraordinary. Oh my god. Should we begin with Travis Scott? No, no, no. Let, let's just do this. Okay, go go ahead. I have to stop banging on the desk because that is bullshit when it comes to editing. <laughs> and I have to take out all of these pounds that I make on this table. So, <laughs> I have heard so many podcasts recently and seen so many YouTube videos and watched so many, uh, so much network news coverage about Travis Scott and this show in Houston. And of course, there's going to be coverage. People died at a concert. Eight. That's an un- that's an unusual event. It doesn't usually happen that you have even a single death. It's not some person who was in ill in ill health that 
happened to die while attending a concert. There was a crowd surge and people died during a show. That's a big deal. Yeah. But the amount of coverage, I think, is a little disproportionate considering all of the other things going on in the world and even in this country right now. Yeah. I I really do. I think that it is heavily slanted simply by the fact that he is associated with the Kardashians. Yeah. I really do think that we are all living in a Kardashian world in some sense. And (laughs) so we have to talk about Kardashian things always. Yeah. I mean, it keeps fucking coming back to them ever since OJ. It ever since OJ. <laughs> the witchcraft. <laughs> <laughs> but I really don't want to start there because there is a larger world that we all live in. Yeah. This is an important, this is a momentarily important event. And I'm not diminishing the deaths of anybody now or anything like that. But realistically, people are dying all the time and we don't know anything about them. So we should keep that in perspective. Yeah. If we only pay attention to the deaths that surround some sort of celebrity mystique, then we're a terrible culture. Couldn't agree more. With that with that said, and our impending social media cancellation... <laughs> <laughs> to cleave it open a bit i i did i tell us what you have in store for us for the beginning of our show julian all right so this this was uh something that i kind of sprung upon the both of us this evening that uh i got thinking about and i went down a bit of a rabbit hole and i felt like it tied into some of the broader things that we're talking about today But we're recording this on Armistice Day, which is in the United States often known as Veterans Day. Who who calls it Armistice Day? The rest of the world. Uh huh. (laughs) Um. So it's it's basically Veterans Day and the the standard measurement system that we have a claim to fame. Yeah. Oh, uh, we also have a claim to fame to uh, the fake Labor Day. Uh, that happens in September, and the real Labor Day, which, ironically enough, celebrates a day that happened in Chicago on May first, which is celebrated. Which we on, call May Day. Which is called May Day, which is celebrated on the rest of the world in the rest of the world. So, fake Labor Day was intentionally made by uh, um, the Knights of Labor and Grover Cleveland, President Grover Cleveland, uh, in order to specifically forget the real Labor Day, because it was too radical and it celebrates anarchists and socialists. And what's wrong with anarchists and socialists? <laughs> we'll put a pin in it. <laughs> I just want to point out that an organization called the Knights of Labor sounds super shady. Uh, they were super shady. <laughs> and yeah. and uh, But we celebrate present day quote, Labor Day in the United States, specifically to forget about the real Labor Day that the rest of the world celebrates, which uh, commemorates the uh, uh, Haymarket Martyrs and the uh, atrocities at the Hay- at the uh, Chicago McCormick Works factory in 1886, um, which is what the rest of the world calls Labor Day. So we have a few things. We have imperial measurement, 
and other things. <laughs> um, That's what we have. But uh, but Armistice Day, uh, which I think is really a fascinating way to kick it off. The 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 was the official cessation of hostilities on the Western Front in particular, and in general of the end of the war that is called the Great War. It was called the Great War at the time. It's now called World War I. They, they were all great. <laughs> well, it... It was called the Great War at the time, uh, and now we call it World War One for obvious reasons, because at the time they didn't know there was going to be a sequel. Because we didn't learn our lesson the first time. And they, interestingly, and much like the Titanic, if you will, which was the unsinkable ship, they called World War One the war to end all wars. Yes, they did. And uh, it inspired several years later uh, through one of the Geneva Conventions, the abolition, or at least in paper, the abolition of poison gas and a number of other things. It was the introduction at that time of industrial warfare, which really had never been seen before. The Archduke Franz Ferdinand was the presumed heir of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and he was assassinated. This kicked off the First World War. He was assassinated by Serbian nationalists. Much of the uh, historical records that we have come from the later trials of these people, which mm -hmm. were pretty dubious at best. So we don't even really know right. the whole truth behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of speculation that it was really uh, the Serbian kingdom and some other things. But that's not so really... So we don't know who exactly... We don't know exactly who plotted all of this or what their actual motives were. Exactly. Or whether people were being, whether they were manipulated into these roles or. And, and on top of that, the court was a kangaroo strings. court where yeah. we derive most of our evidence of who did what and where and how and why. Right. But nevertheless, the important thing here is that this event triggered a series of treaties and responses mm -hmm. that started World War I that were set in place to prevent war and ended up causing the most at that time global but importantly industrial war until that point mm -hmm. uh keeping in mind uh, we only recently it w it was a terrible confluence of circumstances yeah that the political environment had become so heated and at the same time industrialization had allowed for productivity to and technology. Exactly. Industrialization in Europe had allowed for the manufacture of implements of war at a scale that we had never seen before. And could not conceive until that point. It was really breathtaking at that point. And keeping in mind the zeitgeist of the, of the time. So we're talking about uh, circa 1914 is when this kicked off. Around this time, we're just around the corner from having invented the airplane, the motor car. We had the bicycle in 1886, the modern bicycle in 1886. Understanding the context of the time and how much is changing globally, not only geopolitically, but also technologically and a number of other things. We're diving into the first instance, as we understand it in modern day at least, of 
what we call weapons of mass destruction that have been that has been a phrase that has been abused rather a lot in the last few decades. But really, this is Julian, when it emerged. Julian, Colin Powell just died. I don't think we need to Listen, there are known knowns and there are known unknowns. And there are unknown knowns and known unknown known. Wait, I lost track. Wait, how does that go again? <laughs> Uh, so my point being that so that that was a quote from friend of the pod donald (laughs) may he rest in peace Is is he dead i don't think he's dead is he not i don't know it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter god i hope he's dead anyway um the uh uh so yes uh circling back around a little bit so we have all these treaties the introduction of modern warfare w- w- wmds in iraq yes <laughs> uh but we also have throughout the progress of this war not only do we have an extraordinary amount of casualties uh, which is the euphemism to describe people killed by warfare between states we also have an unprecedented kind of warfare that we've never really seen before and the dissolution of four empires throughout this course. We have the Austro-Hungarian, the German, the Russian, and notably the Ottoman Empire. Now, the other ones are notable, of course, but what comes out of the Ottoman Empire and its dissolution, which we find uh, the territories that controlled much of more or less uh, the uh, northern coastal areas of present-day Africa and a lot of the areas of Mediterranean Middle East and a number of other areas besides, including Iraq, Syria, and other places. And the Sykes-Picot Agreement between largely the British and the French but uh, the Americans, and to a limited degree, the Russians were involved as well. And the Italians, I think, were a part of it in a very marginal way. This agreement set forth the lines and the boundaries of the Middle Eastern and Northern African conflicts that would play out throughout the 20th century. Um, it took a few decades to mature. But that's when this happened. That's when these lines were drawn. And we're going to, I'm going to circle back around to that because that becomes somewhat important when we come back to ISIS a little bit later in northern Syria. We also have at the end of World War I, the debt in Germany. The economist John Maynard Keynes described the agreements for Germany, uh, the uh, Treaty of Versailles, which happened in 1919. So it took about six months for the armistice to the treaty that ended the war, uh, which the United States did not sign, interestingly. It it took about six months for the Treaty of Versailles to finally end the war in uh, 1919. But uh, Keynes, who is uh, famously known for Keynesian economics, which is the foundation of much of the economics that we know today, uh, that bases our economics on the idea of consumption-based economics. That is to say, if people are buying things, things are great. 
So figure out how to make people buy things. Very simplistic way of putting it. But John Maynard Keynes was a pivotal economist at the time. He inspired some of the economic theories that we saw in the 40s, especially with things uh, where it was it was said uh, the degree of veracity is not really important, I don't think. But um, the the sort of tale that was told about uh, a lot of the public works projects of FDR was that people would be paid to dig ditches and fill them back in again. The whole point is that it doesn't matter what you're doing as long as you're doing something and getting paid so that you could use that money to buy things. And that was Keynesian economics. That kind of brings up Hayek a little bit later, but the important thing here is that Keynes described, and he was, he was part of the Paris agreements or, 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 or some of the negotiations or, or something related to that. Keynes described it as a Carthaginian peace. And what he meant by that is that after World War I, Germany was made to pay the uh, prevailing powers a debt that uh, Keynes and a number of other historians saw as uh, a ridiculous debt, an amount of debt that cannot really be repaid, which was considered by many historians, and I think it sounds sound, uh, to be one of the contributing factors to the rise of the Nazi party. This resentment uh, that happened where, um, again, this is perhaps another one of those examples of an economic rhetorical device, but it might be based in a good degree of truth, is that it's said that in Germany after World War I, in part because of the reparations that were imposed, which were 132 billion gold marks, or more or less $442 billion present day, that Germany's economy was so tattered and inflation was so great that you had to carry in wheelbarrows all of your Deutschmarks to the uh, place to get bread or whatever it is. And this is the tale is told. I mean, there's a certain that's, degree that's of called truth. called a bakery. Oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> That's that's <laughs> that's that's what the humans call it, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, as such, uh, it, it was an interesting outcome coming from World War One that really set all of the dominoes in a row, ready to be struck down for World War Two to start. We had these lines drawn between these different national boundaries. We had the dissolution of multiple empires, and we had the rise of nationalism that began in the 19th century and really began to get a significant foothold in the early 20th century. Then we have, at a certain point after World War I, we have these ideas of the League of Nations where we can't resolve these differences out of warfare and conflict as such, we have to do it through negotiation and, and things of those general natures. This is the prevailing idea right after World War I that we thought, this is, this is how this is going to work. Well, the League of Nations failed for a number of reasons that are not really, that we could go on for an eternity discussing. But what we really see towards the end of it, it also is 
an idea of isolationism. There's a reluctance from the UK and a number of other uh, would-be allied powers in the future to intervene in uh, the increasing aggression of Germany in 1936 because uh, not only the UK at the time, uh, they, they in, in a series of concessions, but also the United States had this idea that it's not my business. It's not my problem. We already went through World War I. Let's not do this again. We don't care. So around 1939, we had Germany invading Poland, and that triggered a number of treaties in the West, uh, and notably with the UK, that made war inevitable. And up until that point, many of the Western powers, France, the UK, and others, were avoiding it as much as possible. And then we even found several years after that, the isolationism that the United States had up until 1941, when it was attacked in Pearl Harbor, really prevented the attack on Germany and the prevention or intervention of this growing aggression. I think you were going to say something? Right before Hitler invaded Poland, he was on the cover of Time magazine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I was going to say. Now, the way the story of the Time magazine cover is typically told is that he was named the man of the year in 1939 without any sort of context, simply because Americans were so in love with the results of the Nazi fascist ideology. That's not exactly true. It was pretty clear from the publishers of Time magazine that the distinction of appearing on the cover of the magazine was not necessarily an honor, but that it represented the influence of the individual on world events. Full stop. Yeah. Not necessarily an influence on world events for the better, but just influence on world events. Yeah. And at that point, there were fascist and and, and Nazi groups in the United States that were very popular. I mean, they were really on the rise in the United States. And there's there's some old reels that you can find and other things like that. They've largely kind of faded in the back into the background, but it was really gaining global popularity, the United States included, until lines were drawn very clearly. But mm-hmm. what happened a little bit towards the end of it also, I think, is interesting. Towards the end of World War II, we had a problem with currency, uh, and this has been an ongoing problem for decades. But they resolved in one of the Bretton Woods agreements in 1944, where our friend John Mader Keynes also made an appearance. He was arguing a certain proposal of how we should have international currency, because they had this difficulty uh, with gold-backed currencies and, and currency trading generally. There was inconsistency and instability in markets revolved around currency. Keynes and the U.S. Treasury Secretary at the time, his last name is White, I don't remember his first name, uh, but nevertheless, they, they kind of were the two key thinkers who were promoting different ideas, and they came to an agreement in 1944. And out of that agreement, we had a couple of things that really shook the remaining 20th century in ways that I don't think anybody could have predicted. One of the things is that 
the international standard got pegged to the U.S. dollar. That happened out of the Bretton Woods Agreement. That was in part because the U.S. dollar at the time was the key currency that was based on a gold standard, among other things. A lot of things went down during that agreement, which was really almost like a, a free-for-all. <laughs> there's, there's a lot of interesting history and backstory to it. There's even a great Planet Money episode about this very thing, that if people are really interested in it, they should Google it. Um, it's a very fascinating story about it. But what's relevant here is that it got pegged to the U.S. dollar. The IMF and the World Bank were created. The IMF and the World Bank became very notorious in the 1990s when there was a huge backlash to the IMF's conditions. These conditions were basically using debt to nations based on loans that were primarily to uh, dictators and other folks that didn't pay their debts or were ousted or some other such thing. When it came time to pay the dues, the imposition by the IMF was, oh, you don't have money. Now we're going to impose conditions. I think the average was something like 144 conditions or something like that. These are the austerity measures that were imposed on nations all over the world that took funds from the IMF and the World Bank. Countries like Greece and Portugal were hit especially hard during this time period because they took IMF funds. And Argentina. It was a famous one. Argentina was another one. That's a famous one recently. But earlier on, it was, I think Greece and Portugal were the notable examples. And for some reason, this trend continued where people would take IMF money because they'd gotten themselves into economic troubles. And then they basically become beholden to IMF's dictations about how they should run their economy. Exactly right. Of course, we see uh, in 1999, the Battle of Seattle, my new favorite American city, uh, <laughs> and a number of other things that really brought light to the IMF, World Bank, and the, uh, I forget the third one, but, um, but chiefly IMF and World Bank, how these institutions impacted an extraordinary amount of harm on these countries. In order to have these countries pay back the loans, which these conditions didn't really help them pay back the loans, they imposed such extraordinary austerity measures that impacted the lowest of the low of that particular socioeconomic class of a given country, and made it so that they were taking bread out of the mouths of the poor in order to impose this neoliberal economic policy. In every one of those countries, it ended up being an absolute disaster. Not only were they not able to pay back the loans, but they had these austerity measures on top of it, and riots for good reason in many cases, and all sorts of other destruction besides. I mean, the wake left behind by these IMF austerity measures, these conditions, is extraordinary. But this is where it started, and this all has to do with financing, debt, and currency in particular. Some of these austerity measures that are imposed on nations that take money from the IMF and the World Bank represent essential services, or at least what could be considered essential services by most people. Things like 
freezing wages for government employees, cutting back on programs for the homeless, for veterans, freezes on hiring, freezes on pensions. It's not surprising that people who feel the effect of these austerity measures would have a problem with it. Absolutely. That kind of brings it back to the idea of currency in the first place, which uh, in the United States, we take for granted that we have the American dollar, uh, which was once called the greenback. In the 19th century, what we had prior to the Civil War was an extraordinary amount of banknotes, such a large amount of banknotes that if you went into a pub or wherever, they had a phone book sized catalog of different sorts of currencies uh, that were different banknotes that you would that you would trade in. And so if you took your banknote for whatever amount of gold that you had or silver or whatever it is, but you took a note from your bank into uh, into a into a uh, a pub or whatever it is, they take out this fucking phone book and look up your note and your bank and see what it's worth in that county or city or state relative to the issuing bank. So if you can imagine how uh, currency is traded internationally, oh, how much is an American dollar worth in Mexico and yada, 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 yada. It was like that, but for every fucking bank (laughs) at this time. And there were plenty of um, other banks that uh, were just full of shit and, and nonsense. There was even a bank called... Uh, the Bank of the Golden Fleece. Wow. <laughs> I, I'm sure they were referring to the uh, to the story of Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, in all of the above, we have at that time just so many currencies and inconsistencies with currencies, not only in, in, in one city, state, or town, but also across state boundaries. It was just a, a mess. What the federal government did during the Civil War was issue greenbacks, which were backed by the federal government, which Mm -hmm. because of their consistency and because of the assurance of their redeemability, they ended up becoming much more of a standard currency because people could count on redeeming them. That ended up proliferating at an extraordinary rate to the point where Not terrifically long after that, the greenback became the standard currency in the United States. And then not terrifically long after that, it was mandated by the federal government that that was the only currency. And this was an important shift when the federal government said, this is legal tender and you have to accept it as legal tender. And it's the only legal tender in the United States. That was a huge shift in economic and and political affairs in the United States. What we learn from this, in part, is that how currency is issued and the trust in currency are big factors. If you are going to operate a government of some kind, a state, which claims a monopoly of violence over a given territory, and claims the exclusive right to the monopoly of civic affairs of a given territory, Mm -hmm. then in a market economic system, you also need to manage the exclusive right to at least monitor or manage the currency at play. These things kind of go together. We saw this in northern Syria. Daesh, or ISIS as it's popularly known in the United States, 
by the way, Dosh, if you're interested, is uh, spelled Delta Al- Alpha Echo Sierra Hotel. Dosh swept through areas of northern and northeast Syria. The fight and repulsion of Dosh or ISIS by the Kurdish Democratic Movement and what would become the uh, Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, which include Kurds, Assyrians, and a number of other groups in a, an extraordinary example of direct democracy prevailing over ethno-fascism and other extraordinary forms of tyrannical authoritarianism. Nevertheless, th- that, that story aside, what happened in the early years after the fall, or, or more or less fall, of the Syrian government is that ISIS swept through and imposed their own currency. And uh, they were calling it their, their dinar. The reason that they were doing this was because control of economic power and that control of local power and civic power rested in the control of the form of currency. So talking about currency is not a small deal. Currency is and has been a big deal. And it will remain a big deal so long as we have a market form of economic structure in our prevailing civilization. The dinar, the Islamic, it was the ISIS dinar was modeled on a coinage from medieval Islamic empire named the Umayyad Caliphate. They started mandating of all the territories that they controlled that people had to use their ISIS coin is what it ended up being called. They were able to gain an extraordinary amount of power and maintain power until they were pushed out by the Democratic Federation of Northern Syria. But that power had a lot to do with their control of a a currency that they created. Mm -hmm. All of this came about after the rise of the Arab Spring, which came about after an uprising in Tunisia, which is present-day Tunisia, but formerly ancient Carthage. And I think that that is an interesting Mm -hmm. note. Bringing us all around. I'm bringing it all (laughs) around. (laughs) With that, I I think maybe we can dive into Dojapalooza. Something that we can add to this for everyone listening. The ISIS dinar is not the same thing as the Iraqi dinar. Dinar is the name of the currency that was used, like we said earlier, by the Umayyad Caliphate. And it is simply the name of the currency. It doesn't have an association specific to a particular country. The ISIS dinar was motivated by a political and economic agenda to distance ISIS from the U.S. petrodollar. The Iraqi dinar is an absolute scam trying to trick baby boomers into believing that at some point the Iraqi currency will be reevaluated, and if they buy enough of it, they will end up becoming rich as soon as Trump becomes president again. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't he still the president? Well, he's the real president, but... 
In 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 addition to JFK and JFK Jr. That's right. That's right. Now now you're up to speed. <laughs> so while we're talking about currency scams, let's talk about Doja Palooza 2022. Are you excited? You have your tickets yet? <laughs> no, you're not going. Oh, were you asking me? I thought it was a rhetorical question. No, no, no. I really want to know. Are you going to Doja Palooza? <laughs> I, I thought you were asking our audience, are you excited? Are you going yet? <laughs> <laughs> because, of course, I have my tickets ready to go for uh, October. Whenever they finally <laughs> have it. Currently, it is spring. Currently, the date is going to be spring of 2022 in sugarland texas i keep telling you bad things happen in texas where is sugarland do you know is that close <sighs> to anything else oh it's just outside of houston houston <laughs> <laughs> the model of doja palooza 2022 is New to Dogecoin? No worries. All currencies are encouraged and welcome at Dogepalooza. That's relevant because really they just want to take your money. Dogepalooza is only the latest in a series of crypto-themed events and venues, but they all have a similar sales pitch that promises luxury and the guarantee that you won't ever bump into anyone who hasn't heard of Wall Street bets. If that's not enough to bring in the crypto bros... Dionne Warwick is headlining, Julian. <laughs> no way. Yeah. She's got to be only like 35 years old, probably. Because that's what every Dogecoin meme lord wants to see, an 80-year-old gospel and R&B singer. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I can't think of any more relevant talent. Do you remember her from the early 2000s? <laughs> do, you, do you remember the Psychic Friends Network? Oh, Oh my god. <laughs> I I remember several psychic networks. So if, if you were alive in the 2000s, oh my god, they started in 1991. If you if you were alive in the uh I I guess it was it was earlier than that. If you were So if you were alive in the late 90s and staying up late, you saw the Psychic Friends network commercials. Dion Warwick from the Psychic Friends Network. For anyone who call up the network and talk to the Psychic Friends for free. My free call with Psychic Friends is really good. Getting a free call was just wonderful. The call to the Psychic Friends Network is also free. I love the fact the call was free. Just dial the number on your screen right now. A free reading would be great. It's free. I'm going to call. Psychic Friends are the best. How can you not call? So that's what I think of when I think of Dionne Warwick. I would go to Doja Palooza if only, only if she promises <laughs> to restart the Psychic Friends Network on the main stage. Well, I wonder if she can predict how this event is going to go. <laughs> <laughs> so she was she was just on SNL last last week or a couple of weeks ago, and they asked her about this. I don't know why Dionne Warwick was on SNL. She is an icon. She is a legitimate icon. Sure. But she was on SNL just for one skit. And she was asked why she was doing Doja Palooza. And she gave the most honest answer anybody could possibly give. 
because they paid her a lot of money. (laughs) If anything smacks of boomer energy, it's hiring a person to resurrect them from retirement (laughs) in their 80s in order to perform at an obscure thing that this person uh, has nothing to do with in any way, shape, or form. And the audience has nothing to do with in any way, shape, or form in terms of listening to this music. I'm sure it's fine, but it has nothing to do with anything. I can't imagine that she even knows what Dogecoin is. (laughs) Why would she have any idea what Dogecoin is? Could you imagine that that conversation where she asked somebody, "What it? How does this work? Why is there a dog on it?" I'm looking at the list of other musical guests that are going to be in attendance, and I don't know any of them. They have someone named Damon Elliott who has won a Grammy award. He's a DJ, musician, songwriter, composer, friend of Doja Palooza. And there's a classic classical pianist. Chloe Flower, she's played with Cardi B. Okay. White Sun, don't know. They could be great, but I've never heard of them. Something called Akua, the Dancing Doge. A male Shiba Inu. I, a dog. A dog is listed. So on this list, list, it took me it took me a second to recognize that what I was actually seeing right here on this list of musical guests, musical guests, the fifth, sixth one down on the list, fifth one down on the list is a dog. And And it says, quote, my dad has been a successful media executive in Hollywood. The next one down on the list is Lil Mook. (laughs) An independent artist from Alabama. How would you feel if a dog got higher billing than you for this event? Whose dad has been a successful media executive. Wait, is that is that that Little Mook's dad or the dog? Oh, uh, the dog in this case. (laughs) (laughs) This website is about as old as the Psychic Friends Network. That's how it looks. So on the Doja Palooza Festival site, you can find out how to get involved. You can see who the attendees are going to be. And that's nothing but a form to sign up. Is anybody sponsoring this? Oh, the sponsors. The sponsors look great. The, the, oh, the they spon- look amazing. They're all Doge-related things. And they they have this sort of... uh. I mean, obviously, half of them or more have this, like, dog-related thing, obviously, from that species of dog. But some of them have this sort of, like, galaxy-themed background. Every one of these logos on the sponsors page looks like an ad from High Times. (laughs) And the last couple are Cannabis Doge and Chameleon CBD Inc. And Endocorp. (laughs) <laughs> I, I guarantee that Doge Doja Palooza is going to be fantastic. This is going to be the social event of the season, spring twenty twenty two. If you're not if you're not in a suburb of Houston, then 
you just won't understand. One thing that really strikes me about this that I, I just is off the rails, but so consistent with this emerging brand is that there is a set of affinities. And and I say brand, not mistakenly and not casually. I say there's this set of affinities that really goes in line with this sort of Joe Rogan-esque ideology that... uh, How many many people do you... How many uh, of all the people who end up showing up to Doja Palooza... How many of them do you think are also Joe Rogan listeners? Oh, fucking 98% <laughs> minimum. That, that, minimum. That, that a, that's a Venn diagram that's really just two overlaying circles. <laughs> <laughs> but there's this convergence, and I think it is a worthwhile convergence to consider, where there is this smidge of hippy-dippy uh, in in the, I don't know, Ugh, I I vomit in my mouth a little bit as I say it, but uh, this pot culture, whatever the fuck that means. But there's this there's this sort of attitude of like a pot culture, if you will. It's this whole culture of people who are combining this quasi libertarian attitude mixed with a smidge, just a just a just a dash of conspiracy theory, but not enough. To be on full-on Trumpkin land, uh, necessarily. Although he's getting, he has been recently getting into the anti-vax bullshit. Not, it's not fully full-on Republican, but it's not full-on Libertarian. It's this quasi, kind of cool, edgy Libertarian, is what I would think of it. But it's got this this sort of like patchouli-reeking hemp hippie accent to it the pot smoking libertarians are the worst kind of libertarians (laughs) the libertarians that really just want to have weed in every convenience store are the worst kind of libertarians (laughs) because can confirm they're they're fully willing to do everything they can when they're not completely stoned to bring about the end of every social program and and institute private police departments and firemen just so that they can have pot wherever they want to have it. Which, these things don't go together, by the way. They they have, they're not mutually exclusive things. The Libertarian Party is a big tent, Julian. Everybody is welcome. <laughs> they're all welcome. As long, as long as you want to take food away from children... And you want to encourage everybody to have a taller wall around their house, you can be part of it. <laughs> so Doja Palooza is just the latest of a series of crypto themed events and venues and destinations. In October 2020, Three seasteading enthusiasts bought a 245-meter-long cruise ship called the Pacific Dawn. Grant Romunt, Rudiger Koch, and Chad Elwartelski planned to sail the ship to Panama, where they were based, and park it permanently off the coastline as the centerpiece of a new society trading only in cryptocurrencies. An homage to Satoshi Nakamoto, 
the pseudonym of Bitcoin's mysterious inventor or inventors, they renamed the ship the MS Satoshi. They hoped it would become a home to people just like them, digital nomads, startup founders, and early Bitcoin adopters. Their vision was utopian. If your idea of utopia is a floating crypto community in the Caribbean Sea, no longer was seasteading a futuristic ideal, it was, said Robunt, an actual ship. The Satoshi also offered a chance to marry two movements of crypto devotees and seasteaders, united by their desire for freedom, from convention, regulation, tax. Freedom from the state in all its forms. But converting a cruise ship into a new society proved more challenging than envisaged. The high seas, while appearing borderless and free, are in fact some of the most tightly regulated places on Earth. The cruise ship industry in particular is bound by intricate rules. As Roman put it, we were like, this is just so hard. <laughs> Nobody thought to check to see what the laws were on the open sea. They thought it was just a free-for-all. They thought they were going to the moon. Even the moon has regulations. Yeah. They, have, they had no... There, they there's had international no... agreements about the fucking moon. Why wouldn't you think that there would be on the ocean? This is the <laughs> most galaxy-brained idea. The fact that these people have so much money to throw into this and didn't even bother to check on some foundational details... This idea of seasteading is this concept that conflates billionaires as cowboys and cowboys as billionaires. These billionaires who are portraying themselves in this image of the Wild West. They're shooting off rockets in a dick-showing con contest between them. But in the same sense... The ordinary person, the person who does not have billionaire, b billions of dollars, or even millions of dollars, is emulating this idea of the fantasy of the billionaire, the fantasy of the billionaire cowboy. Uh, this fantasy is definitely proliferated by the likes of Joe Rogan and, and uh, other such folks with this libertarian fantasy that has no rooting in reality. It has no rooting in, in any sort of economic or political basis. The film that, that plays out in the minds of these people is this idea that we're going to go out and we're going to, I mean, that's why they call it seasteading, like homesteading, because they have this fantasy of manifest destiny and moving out into the Wild West into this forgotten unknown wilderness except it's not forgotten and it's not unknown and people are already fucking there <laughs> yeah it's it's not the wild west people have been there magellan already did it <laughs> this and, is not new and and crucially <laughs> i i think of this this quote that i think is um widely misattributed to steinbeck but nevertheless is most attributed to Steinbeck, so we may as well give him credit, is socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, 
but as a temporarily embarrassed millionaire. But as temporarily I, I, embarrassed millionaires. Yeah, uh, I want to. I want to try that again. Yeah. There's a quote that is, I think, often misattributed to Steinbeck, but attributed often enough that we may as well give him credit. Socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily ex- embarrassed mi- Fuck me. <laughs> There's a quote that is often no, attributed ju- ju- to Steinbeck. Just do the, st- just do the quote. All right. Socialism never took root in America because the poor see themselves not as an exploited proletariat, but as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. Close enough. (laughs) Back to the Guardian article. As with many stories about techno-libertarian fantasies, the tale of the Satoshi begins in an all-male quasi-frat house in San Francisco in the late 90s. Romunt a softly spoken Canadian with the optimistic, healthy glow of someone who combines entrepreneurial success with water sports, was living with a bunch of software <laughs> engineers. Right? <laughs> I love this article. <laughs> <laughs> was living with a bunch of that software word. Engineers, I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> all of whom, all of whom shared an intense dedication to personal improvement. I was a huge Tony Robbins fan. Romant told me in one of several Zoom calls from his office in Panama. Robbins's themes of individual freedom, self-mastery, and the accrual of significant wealth are evident from the titles of his books from that time. Unlimited Power, Lessons in Mastery, Unleash the Power Within, The Power to Shape Your Destiny, and Next Level, Awaken the Giant Within. After his San Francisco stint, Romunt, the son of a hairdresser, created Scissor Boy in 2009, a popular online TV series on hairdressing. And then Schedulebox, a website which offered a digital receptionist service for hairstylists to book their clients. Always digitally inclined, he had, according to his website, the world's most advanced mobile paperless office in 1995. I used to work 17 hours a day, so I didn't have a lot of freedom, he told me. He did, however, make enough money to semi-retire in 2016 and then spent no more than five hours a month running his business. The giant fully awakened, he moved back to Canada, where he lived on a houseboat on Lake Ontario and went kayaking in the mornings as the sun came up. Enraptured by his lifestyle, Romunt wondered why everyone wasn't living this way. (laughs) man of the people Romunt was confused on a flight one day on a flight one day he saw a man wearing a t-shirt with stop arguing start seasteading printed on it Romunt was curious they got talking and the man turned out to be Joe Quirk who was by this time running the seasteading institute it's an institute that means it's a, that means it's a legitimate. So far, the Seasteading Institute had experienced variable or zero success with its projects. Early ideas for a baystead and coaststead off the coast of San Francisco and a clubstead, a resort off the coast of California, never made the leap to reality. An attempt to create a floating island prototype in French Polynesia in 2017 met with a fairly fierce resistance from the people of French Polynesia and collapsed a 
and collapsed a year later when the government pulled out of the scheme. All right. So this is all origin story. After meeting Quirk, Romont decided he wanted to try again. Quirk introduced him to two other aspiring seasteaders, the passionately libertarian American Elwertowski and the Bitcoin-wealthy German engineer Koch. Together, the trio founded a company, Ocean Builders. This isn't the same Koch as in... Nah, no relation. Just another, just a German okay. guy. Got yeah. it. Using their own money, they funded the first attempt at a single residential seastead in the form of a floating white octagonal box, 12 nautical miles off the coast of Thailand. All right. Elwertowski and his girlfriend, Nadia Summergirl, Summergirl, that's her name. That's her Christian name? <sighs> <laughs> My my head is in my hands right now. <laughs> Nadia Summergirl lived there for two months in early 2018 until the Thai government discovered the Seastead's existence and declared it a threat <laughs> to the country's independence. <laughs> Possibly punishable by life imprisonment or death. <laughs> so... A group known for crossing T's and dotting I's, they decided to set up an enclave off the coast of Thailand without telling the government. Yeah. Elwertowski and Summergirl had to flee the country before the Thai Navy dispatched three ships to dismantle the floating box. <laughs> <laughs> Goofballs. Oh. All right. <laughs> Beyond the, the MS Satoshi, there's also a crypto resort, Satoshi Shores. They just can't stop with this guy's name. It's I know. Fruit. I mean, it's it's such an extraordinary feat of hero worship. It's not even a that, real person. That it's it it's worshiping the idea of a person i mean they're they're in a hundred years if this keeps going he's gonna be like achilles or something like that the crypto resort for those listeners who are not familiar with greek philosophy everybody knows who achilles is (laughs) don't be an ass (laughs) the crypto resort satoshi shores also known as the Crypto Citadel, that just makes it sound so Epstein, <laughs> is the world's first Bitcoin resort where blockchain and cryptocurrency enthusiasts can network and luxury. The photos on this website. Oh my. I can't tell by looking at this site if this is actually a real place. I really don't know. I, I can't tell. Uh, you, nowhere on this site does it say where they're located. Or what's there? It just says it keeps using this very optimistic language. Like Satoshi Shores will have three restaurants, a juice bar, two cafes, three bars, two pools, four whirlpools, a water park, and much more. I I don't think any of this actually exists. Leisure and wellness, Satoshi Shores will have a fully stocked fitness center. 
casino and nightlife, Bitcoin will be accepted throughout the crypto resort. Luxury entertainment. The crypto resort's 5,000 square foot theater will be used to host educational workshops. How do they know it has 5,000 square feet if it doesn't actually exist? Their layout of the website is so bad. It, it, it's like you tossed it up on on um, Squarespace overnight. Where th- There's no margins on the left, by the way. No margins. I mean, I'm not getting into being nitpicky about design, but I'm just saying, in this context... If this is supposed to be this multi-million dollar effort, I don't know. Perhaps what you could this afford is. margins on the left. <laughs> I honestly don't screen. know what I don't know what this is. I mean, this it literally looks like, um, and I'm going to F12 it in a second here, but it really looks like uh, just some nonsense that that was tossed up overnight. So this terrible vaporware website is actually actually has a credit at the bottom from a company that made it. Ooh, how embarrassing. Hosted by Coast Create. Yeah, that looks like a fake website too. Oh wow, that looks gnarly. So the next destination for Crypto Bros is the Dose the first Dogecoin only cruise, which plans to set sail in twenty twenty two. The Dogecoin Cruise is hosted by a company called Flip Phone Events and Dream Vacations. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, these are so bad. This is this is from cruiseradio.net. <laughs> Your only source of real news. <laughs> <laughs> Flip phone so reputable. Flip phone events and dream vacations are hosting what they're calling the first ever destination vacation for Dogecoin and cryptocurrency enthusiasts. The Fortnite party is scheduled to depart Miami on April 7, 2022, on the recently renovated Celebrity Summit. That's a ship name. Flip phone and dream vacations are the producers of the Golden Fans at Sea, Golden Girls Fan Cruise with Celebrity. Oh, man. The only thing worse than a Dogecoin cruise would be a Golden Girls fan cruise. (laughs) (laughs) What does that even mean? (laughs) This sounds sounds like an incel concoction, if I ever heard one. So I looked at this, and it is basically a Rocky Horror Picture Show at sea, but with the Golden Girls. And also, way less queer and way more strike it. I don't know. I'm looking at the pictures. It looks pretty queer. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure that that is not their intention. The the Golden Girls banner photo is three men dressed up as Golden Girls. (laughs) Where the... What? What is the website? Join up to 1,000 fans on the brand new Celebrity Apex as we celebrate and salute the most iconic television of all time. Highlights include the Take Me Back to St. Olaf dance party, costume dress-up nights, game nights, parody shows, and a whole lot more. Meet fans and diehards from around the world. The Celebrity Apex is brand new and ready for you. I I, I just saw a... uh... 
a clip on on TikTok that was uh, some clip of some mash scene, I think. There's some higher-ups who are interviewing some lower-downs, and they're saying, well, it, it, it seems that, that one of your personnel are uh, transvestites. And the other guy says, well, I never inquire into the religions of my men. Have you heard this word crypto bro before? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I, I will point out to all of our listeners, I live in Seattle. So the various bros are like a virus here in this town that I call my homeland now. Something that doesn't go unnoticed. So there are the uh, commonly known tech bros which are all over the place here in Seattle. The tech bros don't make their appearance in public as much, which is interesting. I think it's more of a California phenomenon than it is mm -hmm. a Seattle phenomenon. Uh, but I might not be hanging out with, with the right crowds because I'm not hanging out with the tech bros either. But I just don't see the kind of Joe Rogan-esque bros that I see here in Seattle, where in Seattle, it's way more people who are coming here because they have some sort of technical skills that are useful to Amazon or Microsoft or Google or whatever. Uh, but that's the reason that they're here. And they don't necessarily have a ideology or philosophy behind them. Whereas California seems to foster this delusional ideology, much like the sort of Hollywood-esque become a celebrity, become an actor philosophy. There's also this tech bro ideology that seems to be prevalent in California. And again, it may just be my personal experience, but I just don't see it here. I, I see that the billionaires are here, but... The culture isn't here exactly. It's a it's a strange place. Have you ever met a crypto bro? Oh no. All right. And so, and I'll point out I'll point out one other uh, quick side point side point to what I just said. Uh, I think that Seattle is taken to be part of the left coast, which it is. But unfortunately, just recently, there was an extraordinary demonstration of. Uh, how much Seattle is not part of the left coast as it could be, where a vote for city councilors and a number of other things went hard right in the most recent vote on November 2nd, much to my dismay. I mean, hard right. And uh, that was quite a disappointment, but if you live here, not necessarily unexpected. Seattle is portrayed as far more left than it really is in terms of the people who actually go out and vote are a lot of Karens. There's a difference between a person who buys crypto like a stock, somebody who buys cryptocurrency as if it's an investment because they 
hope that it's going to go up in the future and that they're going to make a little bit of money. There's a difference between that kind of person and the true believer, the crypto bro, who thinks that Bitcoin is somehow going to magically change the world once everyone adopts it. Crypto bros basically worship billionaires like Elon Musk, Mark Cuban, and Jack Dorsey and go out of their way to apologize for and rationalize all of their their less than godly behavior. From a, uh, a Market Watch article recently from November 2021, they outline the cryptocurrency that some of these billionaires own. Elon Musk through Tesla and SpaceX. Elon Musk tweets about Shiba Inu. Uh, he said he owns none in response to a Twitter query. Instead, he revealed he invested in Bitcoin, Dogecoin, and Ether. Musk called crypto the future currency of the earth. And, you know, of course, urged his, probably at the uh, the, the nudging of his lawyers, he urged the tw- his 60 million Twitter followers to use caution. But he also said cryptocurrency is promising. And then Tesla bought $1.5 billion in Bitcoin. And not Dogecoin, by the way. No, not Dogecoin, Bitcoin. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, he's been endorsing Bitcoin for at least five years and continues to talk about it. I think as of this week, he actually tweeted something about Bitcoin. He has Bitcoin in his in his profile description on Twitter. It just says yeah. hashtag Bitcoin. That's his, that's his profile. <laughs> <laughs> And then his co- Dorsey's company Square bought $170 million worth of Bitcoin earlier this year. Mark Cuban, famous from Shark Tank, said he owns $500 worth of Dogecoin. $500. <laughs> he owns $500. Oh, what an investment. <laughs> what a vouch for success. <laughs> he, owns, he, he also owns Bitcoin, but did not divulge how much of that he owned. <laughs> $500. Why would he even say that? <laughs> So the problem with the influence that these billionaires have on social media and their relationship to these crypto markets or to the crypto market, to these particular currencies, is that they can tweet in favor of something and they have so many millions of followers that the market will actually move. And they're absolutely shameless about it. Each one of them have said that they think crypto is the future of currency. Not too terribly long ago, Elon Musk single-handedly boosted the value of Dogecoin with just a couple of tweets. By the time he was done tweeting, it was nearly triple its original value. The bros somehow assume that he's doing that for some other reason than his own amusement. That he is doing it because for something other than just enjoying his influence on the market itself. That with a couple of tweets, people will get rich. Right. And... And crucially, what we see in this is that the foundation of a useful currency, as I mentioned earlier when I was talking about the greenback and how it emerged as the dominant currency in the United States, granted, it was after it became mandatory, but it moved into that station gradually uh, out of its own usefulness as a stable currency. And stability is really what makes a currency useful. Stability is what makes a currency useful because 
when you receive it as compensation for something, you can expect that it's going to be worth the same amount when you need to spend it. That's what makes it useful. Just a few months after Musk tweeted that, tweeted it, you know, tweeted Dogecoin to the moon, he referred to it as a hustle when he was on Saturday Night Live. If you were watching that show and watching the crypto market at the same time, you could you could see the value of Dogecoin tumble as soon as he made those comments. That's the kind of influence that people like Musk have on this currency. How can this currency be the future currency of the world if it's so easily influenced? You know, one thing that strikes me about this is that uh, as my as our listeners will come to understand, I'm no fan of the federal government, <laughs> but I'm no fan of a number of other things as well. Well, we'll and, get to some ideas about the federal government and currency regulation in a minute here. <laughs> oh, I'm sure we will. But But I will also say that while on the one hand, if you are to replace a state as an institution, one of the tasks that you must undergo is figuring out a currency. And I, in modern day, cannot think of a better way to make such a transition than some kind of a cryptocurrency. I think that from from the point of view of the argument against states and for some sort of a uh, liberation from states transition, cryptocurrency does make a lot of sense to me. And so I, I'm not I'm not dismissing it out of hand per se. Because I, I I do I do understand the value in controlling the currency and where states currently control the currency, they control a great many other things. And so if you're gonna liberate yourself from states, you have to start among other things with that. There's some other questions involved in that and 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 that line of thinking as well though but there are a lot of other things going on there yeah. so and that's and that's and that's kind of where i'm going with this is that uh the people who are most interested in cryptocurrencies are these people who worship these billionaires who are benefiting from capitalism who are in no way going to diverge uh, to they're not going to go away from capitalism anytime in the near future and so there's this confluence of contradictory ideas where we have on the one hand these people who are saying, I don't like the state and I don't want anybody to tell me what to do. Fair enough. I kind of agree with those arguments, but from probably a different point of view. And, and then they also equally say, we worship the likes of Elon Musk and the rest of it, and we like these cryptocurrencies. But really, these cryptocurrencies are not some sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-state rebellion as they're portrayed to be. What they really are is nonsense, risky investments. A lot and of so times. I think, yeah. and, and I think, I think separating those two things is a really important thing. Where if we're going to ask about what, how would we live without? without current states and how would we move to different institutions that is one question and cryptocurrency may offer one potentiality but that is a far and away different model from talking about 
cryptocurrencies as we currently talk about them, which is typically just some sort of bizarre hero worship of billionaires who rely on the American dollar. It's another and, form. It, it, it is another. It's another aspect of techno libertarianism. It's another aspect of techno libertarianism, which is so rooted in the in in the American ideology of this sort of individualism pull yourself up by your boot bootstraps nonsense that has no relationship to reality or science or economics or politics or economics it is a mythos of john wayne out in the wild west you know these guys like like musk and dorsey and mark cuban these guys keep saying that everything will somehow get better in a magical kind of way as soon as we use this you know this special money this decentralized money and that's the most important thing that we hear about crypto that is that it's better because it's decentralized because it's not controlled by a government but who is it controlled by if if somebody like musk or dorsey can simply tweet and then move this market what good is this currency it's way less stable it is way less stable because if history has taught us anything it's that everything's always better when a few very rich people control things <laughs> wait <laughs> <laughs> you had such a straight face for a second there when you said that that i was totally taken off guard you know the 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 last thing that i that i want to say about crypto right now is that in september of this year el salvador formally adopted bitcoin as their national currency that's a real thing wait i i can't tell if you're serious or not right now no i'm totally serious this is real news get the fuck out of here yeah so in earlier this year in september of 2021, El Salvador formally adopted Bitcoin as their national currency. And this has been running now for two months. No kidding. Right. So initially they 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 had some they they had some pushback from citizens in after this Bitcoin adoption and they created a national Bitcoin wallet that everybody can can access. Or basically, or a Bitcoin wallet that every individual can access. The, yeah, they're they're not. It's not one wallet. It's individual wallets for everybody. Sure. And then they were given, I believe, uh, thirty dollars worth of Bitcoin at that market value at that time period. So if they took that thirty bucks and they didn't touch it, it would be worth more like seventy dollars now. Because the price of Bitcoin has gone up that much in that short of a period of time. Right. I think it's doubled in that time period. It started off this year at around $10,000 and it is up over $60,000 now. Well, for what it's worth, I mean, that's the same concept as the Bretton Woods Agreement in pegging the international currency to the U.S. dollar, mm -hmm. which is that at that time they thought it was the most stable currency. So if what you're saying is the case of the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin has remained the most stable currency of the cryptocurrencies. 
I, I suppose. I, I, I'm not making an argument for or against. I'm just saying right. we can we can draw parallels to why they would choose that in the same way that the Bretton Woods Agreement chose the U.S. Oh. dollar. Oh, no. If if a government was forced to make a decision about which cryptocurrency they should adopt as their national currency, Bitcoin was the ob- Bitcoin is the obvious choice. Because it has the most wide adoption, but it doesn't make it stable by any it means. It doesn't make it stable. I don't. Ne- I don't think it's necessarily a good quality that it has. Gr- it has increased in value so much over the last twelve months. I mean that that it, that contributes to the notion that it is not stable. That doesn't make it a good candidate for legal tender for a country for transactions. Wow, I'm really stunned by this. I mean, I, I'm I'm learning about this from you right now. I did not know that they transitioned as such. So we're just going to have to see. Uh, we're going to have to look at, we're going to have to pay attention to El Salvador. And El Salvador previously had adopted the U.S. dollar as their currency. That's what they've been using as their currency up until this point. As a direct consequence of IMF yes. complications. Exactly, because of what... IMF called runaway inflation of their yeah. of, of their prior currency that I can't remember. So it, this could be some sort of economic utopia in Central America, and it could also be the Hunger Games. We don't. Know and that. it could potentially. <laughs> I'm just you're tossing this to, out there. You're supposed to it laugh could... at this. You're supposed to laugh oh. when I make those jokes. <laughs> oh, let me try that again. No, do it again. Do it again. I can laugh. I can laugh. I can find things humorous. No, no, no. Let's you want to try keep, again? Let, let's keep I'll going. find it funny. This is No, it'll better. be funny. This is funnier. <laughs> <laughs> I can recognize humor. I can do that. I promise. Uh, no, but what but what could be what could happen potentially is that it could have I'm wildly speculating here, but it could have a stabilizing effect and create a feedback loop where if it's pegged to a national currency and vice versa, it could have a stabilizing effect as if it is a national currency. And as such, because it's a national currency, gain more credibility and have more of a stabilizing effect in international markets and then kind of balance out over the next five years. I think it could, if other companies are, let me say that again, get untangled from my headphones. Right <laughs> I, I, I think that you're, I think that it could have a stabilizing effect if other countries also adopted it. But I think as El Salvador's economy is just too small to have any kind of an influence right now, the largest the largest uh, uh, the largest concentration of Bitcoin wealth is in China, by far. Interesting. It would it would take quite a few countries to adopt Bitcoin as their currency to have that kind of stabilizing effect. I think, but I don't really know what I'm talking about. Nor do I. I'm I'm just wildly speculating. But I I to to have it as a national currency yep. does seem to have some kind of stabilizing effect. I would assume. It might, on the currency. It might not. It might not be enough to outweigh the the amazing amount of wealth that other 
that other Bitcoin owners have. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The economy in El Salvador is smaller than most international corporations. Yeah, I think that, that makes sense. I think that 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 Tesla's brief stint buying one point five billion dollars worth of Bitcoin has a much more stabilizing influence, or would have if they would have kept it and not sold it off, would have had a much more stabilizing influence on Bitcoin than El Salvador adopting it as currency. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The fact that that Elon Musk and and such corporations are able to uh, have such an influence on, on currency markets as such really reflects the instability of those markets. And instead of encouraging, in my view, encouraging investment in those markets, it really only encourages risky investments where it's the type of people who want to get in and get out quickly. But anybody who has any sense will realize that such an unstable market really has no long-term investment opportunities. You'd think so. I'm not putting my, my, myself in the, in the camp of libertarians at all, but I do really think that there is an extraordinary value in the concept of a crypt cryptocurrency, generally speaking. Uh, I do value that, and I'm in favor of that concept. Um, because I'm not in favor of state-controlled monetary systems. But the stability point is the point that makes a currency what it is. Can you imagine if you were one of this crowd of colonists that went to Mars and Musk was in charge? <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. Let's call it right there. <laughs> I think that I think that's a good spot. <laughs> that was pretty good. I think I think you're right. We didn't even get to Travis Scott, but I think I, I feel like that I was know. I think that's perfectly fine. No, we, we we can catch up with that next time if we want to as an intro to the self help thing. But what's great is that what's great is that our whole TikTok or God damn it. Our whole uh, podcast so far has been, we talked about international affairs, international relations, currency, and everything kind of had a general theme around it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what we'll, we'll do, it, it, uh, the title I'm thinking of is uh, Dogecoin and the Weimar Republic. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> I didn't bring up the Weimar Republic, but I was considering it. Thank you for listening to another episode of Wetwired. We truly appreciate all the support and feedback that we've received so far. It means everything to us. If you want to support the show and help us stay ad-free and independent, go to patreon.com forward slash wetwired. You can also support us by leaving a review on iTunes or sharing the podcast on social. Um, so we have we have some other crazy Doge events going on, uh, and one of those is Doge Palooza. They are active in the chat here now, and we're going to be talking to uh, a representative from Doge Palooza, Coco Chanel, uh, up next. So Gary, um, 
we linked your we linked your website in the description but if there's anything else you want to say or shout out now is the time the floor is yours you guess hi to coco we just started talking to the doge palooza folks oh really we can bring her on right now actually hey coco welcome hey guys how's it going we're doing well how about yourself doing fantastic i'm just glad to see some green in my portfolio so i'm happy <laughs> hell yeah so is there going to be any crossover between doge palooza uh and, and the doge doge dance party we will have to keep that under wraps but we do have some really fun stuff planned and uh it's we, we there's some stuff we can talk about and then we have a lot of stuff that we're going to be releasing um over the next week or two but we do have a lot of fun stuff going on um i think uh, you guys already uh, heard if you didn't um that we were on a podcast last week um and we uh released they released it on monday and dion warwick is going to be one of our main performers she's going to be performing that's what friends are for which i feel like there couldn't be a more perfect song for like doge family like that is literally what we're about you know we're about community and friendship and family and fun so that's really exciting that we have literally like the queen herself coming on to to sing that song for i don't think there's going to be a dry eye in the house like not one <laughs> So Coco, welcome to the stream. Welcome to Moon or Bust. Welcome to Zinger Nation. Um, for those for those out there in the audience who don't know you, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into crypto, how you got into Doge? Yeah. So, uh, name's Coco Chanel. I have been, uh, gosh, I have been in crypto since 2016. Um, I got into Doge very early. Um, how I got into Doge was, uh, you know, I was getting into cryptos. I had, you know, started buying, you know, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ether. Um, and then when I just remember, you know, when Robinhood added uh, cryptos, I was like, you know, what the heck, like, why does Coinbase not have Dogecoin? And then we got Robinhood, you know, it has Bitcoin, Ether, Lite, and then Doge, which mm -hmm. back in 2016, it wasn't really still considered a serious, you know, coin yet. And so I was like, okay, Robinhood must know something I don't. So I'm just going to throw some in here and see what happens. I got in at about a point zero 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 three cent like you know b way below a cent so i got in pretty early which i'm pretty grateful for <laughs> that's right <laughs>